Chapter Nineteen of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Nineteen, Shadow on the Sundial. Again Miss Twinkleton has delivered her valedictory address, with the accompaniments of white wine and pound-cake, and again the young ladies have departed to their several homes. Helena Landless has left the nun's house to attend her brother's fortunes, and pretty Rosa is alone. Cloisterham is so bright and sunny in these summer days that the cathedral and the monastery ruin show as if their strong walls were transparent. A soft glow seems to shine from within them, rather than upon them from without, such is their mellowness as they look forth on the hot cornfields and the smoking roads that distantly wind among them. The cloisterum gardens blush with ripening fruit. Time was when travel-stained pilgrims rode in clattering parties through the city's welcome shades. Time is when wayfarers, leading a gypsy life between haymaking time and harvest, and looking as if they were just made of the dust of the earth, so very dusty are they, lounge about on cool doorsteps, trying to mend their unmendable shoes, or giving them to the city kennels as a hopeless job, and seeking others in the bundles that they carry, along with their yet unused sickles swathed in bands of straw. At all the more public pumps there is much cooling of bare feet, together with much bubbling and gurgling of drinking with hand to spout on the part of these Bedouins. The cloisterum police, meanwhile, looking askant from their beats with suspicion and manifest impatience that the intruders should depart from within the civic bounds and once more fry themselves on the simmering high-roads. On the afternoon of such a day, when the last cathedral service is done, and when that side of the high street on which the nun's house stands is in grateful shade, save where its quaint old garden opens to the west between the boughs of trees, a servant informs Rosa, to her terror, that Mr. Jasper desires to see her. If he had chosen his time for finding her at a disadvantage, he could have done no better. Perhaps he has chosen it. Helena Landless is gone. Mrs. Tisher is absent on leave. Miss Twinkleton, in her amateur state of existence, has contributed herself and a veal pie to a picnic. "'Oh, why, why, why did you say I was at home?' cried Rosa helplessly. The maid replies that Mr. Jasper never asked the question that he said he knew she was at home, and begged she might be told that he asked to see her. "'What shall I do? What shall I do?' thinks Rosa, clasping her hands. Possessed by a kind of desperation, she adds in the next breath that she will come to Mr. Jasper in the garden. She shudders at the thought of being shut up with him in the house, but many of its windows command the garden, and she can be seen as well as heard there, and can shriek in the free air and run away. Such is the wild idea that flutters through her mind. 
She has never seen him since the fatal night, except when she was questioned before the mayor, and then he was present in gloomy watchfulness, as representing his lost nephew, and burning to avenge him. She hangs her garden hat on her arm, and goes out. The moment she sees him from the porch, leaning on the sundial, the old horrible feeling of being compelled by him asserts its hold upon her. She feels that she would, even then, go back, but that he draws her feet towards him. She cannot resist, and sits down with her head bent on the garden seat beside the sundial. She cannot look up at him for abhorrence, but she has perceived that he is dressed in deep mourning. So is she. It was not so at first, but the loss has long been given up and mourned for as dead. He would begin by touching her hand. She feels the intention and draws her hand back. His eyes are then fixed upon her, she knows, though her own see nothing but the grass. I have been waiting, he begins, for some time to be summoned back to my duty near you. After several times forming her lips, which she knows he is closely watching, into the shape of some other hesitating reply, and then into none, she answers, Duty, sir? The duty of teaching you, serving you as your faithful music-master. I have left off that study. Not left off, I think. Discontinued. I was told by your guardian that you discontinued it under the shock that we have all felt so acutely. When will you resume? Never, sir. Never? You could have done no more if you had loved my dear boy. I did love him, cried Rosa, with a flash of anger. Yes, but not quite, not quite in the right way, shall I say, not in the intended and expected way. Much as my dear boy was unhappily too self-conscious and self-satisfied, I draw no parallel between him and you in that respect. To love as he should have loved, or as any one in his place would have loved, must have loved. She sits in the same still attitude, but shrinking a little more. Then, to be told that you discontinued your study with me, was to be politely told that you abandoned it altogether, he suggested. Yes, says Rosa with sudden spirit. The politeness was my guardian's, not mine. I told him that I was resolved to leave off, and that I was determined to stand by my resolution. And you still are? I still am, sir, and I beg not to be questioned any more about it. At all events, I will not answer any more. I have that in my power. She is so conscious of his looking at her with a gloating admiration of the touch of anger on her, and the fire and animation it brings with it, that even as her spirit rises, it falls again, and she struggles with a sense of shame, affront, and fear, much as she did that night at the piano. I will not question you any more, since you object to it so much. I will confess— I do not wish to hear you, sir, cries Rosa, rising. 
This time he does touch her with his outstretched hand. In shrinking from it, she shrinks into her seat again. We must sometimes act in opposition to our wishes, he tells her in a low voice. You must do so now, or do more harm to others than you can ever set right. What harm? Presently, presently. You question me, you see, and surely that's not fair when you forbid me to question you. Nevertheless, I will answer the question presently. Dearest Rosa, charming Rosa. She starts up again. This time he does not touch her, but his face looks so wicked and menacing as he stands leaning against the sundial, setting, as it were, his black mark upon the very face of day, that her flight is arrested by horror as she looks at him. I do not forget how many windows command a view of us, he says, glancing towards them. I will not touch you again. I will come no nearer to you than I am. Sit down, and there will be no mighty wonder in your music-master's leaning idly against a pedestal and speaking with you, remembering all that has happened and our shares in it. Sit down, my beloved. She would have gone once more, was all but gone, and once more his face, darkly threatening what would follow if she went, has stopped her. Looking at him with the expression of the instant frozen on her face, she sits down on the seat again. Rosa, even when my dear boy was affianced to you, I loved you madly. Even when I thought his happiness in having you for his wife was certain, I loved you madly. Even when I strove to make him more ardently devoted to you, I loved you madly, even when he gave me the picture of your lovely face, so carelessly traduced by him, which I feigned to hang always in my sight for his sake, but worshipped in torment for years, I loved you madly. In the distasteful work of the day, in the wakeful misery of the night, girded by sordid realities, or wandering through paradises and hells of visions into which I rushed, carrying your image in my arms, I loved you madly. If anything could make his words more hideous to her than they are in themselves, it would be the contrast between the violence of his look and delivery and the composure of his assumed attitude. I endured it all in silence, so long as you were his, or so long as I supposed you to be his. I hid my secret loyally, did I not? This lie so gross, while the mere words in which it is told are so true, is more than Rosa can endure. She answers with kindling indignation. You were as false throughout, sir, as you are now. You were false to him, daily and hourly. You know that you made my life unhappy by your pursuit of me. You know that you made me afraid to open his generous eyes, and that you forced me, for his own trusting good, good sake, to keep the truth from him, that you were a bad, bad man. His preservation of his easy attitude 
rendering his working features and his convulsive hands absolutely diabolical, he returns with a fierce extreme of admiration. "'How beautiful you are! You are more beautiful in anger than in repose. I don't ask you for your love. Give me yourself and your hatred. Give me yourself and that pretty rage. Give me yourself and that enchanting scorn. It will be enough for me.' Impatient tears rise to the eyes of the trembling little beauty, and her face flames, but as she again rises to leave him in indignation, and seek protection within the house, he stretches out his hand towards the porch, as though he invited her to enter it. "'I told you, you rare charmer, you sweet witch, that you must stay and hear me, or do more harm than can ever be undone.' You asked me, what harm? Stay, and I will tell you. Go, and I will do it. Again Rosa quails before his threatening face, though innocent of its meaning, and she remains. Her panting breathing comes and goes as if it would choke her, but with a repressive hand upon her bosom she remains. I have made my confession that my love is mad. It is so mad that had the ties between me and my dear lost boy been one silken thread less strong, I might have swept him even from your side when you favoured him. A film comes over the eyes she raises for an instant, as though he had turned her faint. Even him, he repeats, yes, even him. Rosa, you see me, and you hear me. Judge for yourself whether any other admirer shall love you and live, whose life is in my hand. What do you mean, sir? I mean to show you how mad my love is. It was hawked through the late inquiries by Mr. Crisparkle. That young landless had confessed to him that he was a rival of my lost boy. That is an inexpiable offence in my eyes. The same Mr. Crisparkle knows under my hand that I have devoted myself to the murderer's discovery and destruction, be he whom he might, and that I determined to discuss the mystery with no one until I should hold the clue in which to entangle the murderer as in a net. I have slowly worked patiently to wind and wind it round him, and it is slowly winding as I speak. Your belief, if you believe in the criminality of Mr. Landless, is not Mr. Crisparkle's belief, and he is a good man, Rosa retorts. My belief is my own, and I reserve it, worshipped of my soul. Circumstances may accumulate so strongly, even against an innocent man, that directed, sharpened, and pointed, they may slay him. One wanting link, discovered by perseverance against a guilty man, proves his guilt, however slight its evidence before, and he dies. Young Landless stands in deadly peril either way. "'If you really suppose,' Rosa pleads with him, turning paler, "'that I favour Mr. Landless, or that Mr. Landless 
has ever in any way addressed himself to me, you are wrong. He puts that from him with a slighting action of his hand and a curled lip. I was going to show you how madly I love you. More madly now than ever, for I am willing to renounce the second object that has arisen in my life to divide it with you, and henceforth to have no object in existence but you only. Miss Landless has become your bosom friend. You care for her peace of mind? I love her dearly. You care for her good name? I have said, sir, I love her dearly. I am unconsciously, he observes with a smile as he folds his hands upon the sundial and leans his chin upon them, so that his talk would seem from the windows, faces occasionally come and go there, to be of the airiest and playfullest. I am unconsciously giving offence by questioning again. I will simply make statements, therefore, and not put questions. You do care for your bosom friend's good name, and you do care for her peace of mind. Then remove the shadow of the gallows from her, dear one. You dare propose to me to— Darling, I dare propose to you. Stop there. If it be bad to idolise you, I am the worst of men. If it be good, I am the best. My love for you is above all other love, and my truth to you is above all other truth. Let me have hope and favour, for I am a forsworn man, for your sake. Rosa puts her hands to her temples, and pushing back her hair, looks wildly and abhorrently at him, as though she were trying to piece together what it is his deep purpose to present to her only in fragments. Reckon up nothing at this moment, angel, but the sacrifices that I lay at those dear feet, which I could fall down among the vilest ashes and kiss, and put upon my head as a poor savage might. There is my fidelity to my dear boy after death. Tread upon it! With an action of his hands, as though he cast down something precious. There is the inexpiable offence against my adoration of you. Spurn it! With a similar action. There are my labours in the cause of a just vengeance for six toiling months. Crush them! With another repetition of the action. There is my past and my present wasted life. There is the desolation of my heart and my soul. There is my peace, there is my despair. Stamp them into the dust, so that you take me, were it even mortally hating me. The frightful vehemence of the man, now reaching its full height, so additionally terrifies her as to break the spell that has held her to the spot. She swiftly moves towards the porch, but in an instant he is at her side and speaking in her ear. Rosa, I am self-repressed again. I am walking calmly beside you to the house. I shall wait for some encouragement and hope. I shall not strike too soon. 
give me a sign that you attend to me. She slightly and constrainedly moves her hand. Not a word of this to any one, or it will bring down the blow as certainly as night follows day. Another sign that you attend to me. She moves her hand once more. I love you, love you, love you. If you were to cast me off now, but you will not, you would never be rid of me. No one should come between us. I would pursue you to the death. The handmaid coming out to open the gate for him, he quietly pulls off his hat as a parting salute, and goes away with no greater show of agitation than is visible in the effigy of Mr. Saps's father opposite. Rosa faints in going upstairs, and is carefully carried to her room and laid down on her bed. A thunderstorm is coming on, the maids say, and the hot and stifling air has overset the pretty dear. No wonder. They have felt their own knees all of a tremble all day long. End of chapter 19 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during the summer of 2008.